Warning, this podcast will challenge your thinking. Welcome to Business Problems Solved. In this podcast, we help you solve your business problems by providing real examples and practical approaches to make today better than yesterday. Introducing your host, the multi-sector, self-professed, most improved improvement person and qualified business problem solver. Lee Horton. Hey, it's Lee. I've never done this before, but I've invited somebody back onto the podcast. Damien Hughes, best-selling author and uh, visiting professor of organisational psychology and change, is back. We have about an hour-long conversation, not about change and uh, changing culture and influencing that, but it's more personal this time. It's about people. Hey, it's Lee. Welcome to Business Problem Solved. Today, I have the great pleasure of chatting again with visiting professor of organisational psychology and change. Hello there, Damien Hughes. How are you? Hi, Lee. How are you? You okay? Amazing, actually. So uh, this is the first time that I've had the opportunity to speak with somebody for for a second time. So after myself, you're the second most... um, uh, what's the word? Second most? You've, you've had the second number of appearances in the in the in the appearance chart on the podcast so far. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, it's my second cap. Yeah, your second cap. It's my second cap on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, norm, yeah. Normally, it's just me and me pants that get that gets to have more than one cap. So, uh, so welcome back. So, thank you very much for agreeing to do this. No, no. Well, thank you for asking me about Lee. I'm grateful and, and honoured to be asked. So, no, thank it's you. Ama- it's amazing. So, last time last time out, we spoke about creating culture and and helping to make. Change change happen in organizations but this time I really want to talk about individuals and people because and there's a few reasons why, why I want to do that is um, and why I think you're yeah. the right person for this is because of the, the title that I've just just said you're a best-selling author and you've got some amazing books so you've got liquid thinking how to think like Sir Alex Ferguson you've got you're a, a um, co-host on high performance podcast so you 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 you're surrounding yourself and you're having conversations and you've studied the, the triggers that make people um, succeed. But then when I've kind of saw as, as a change agent for 15 years and setting up my own business and stuff, I've got this, this hypothesis and I want to run this past you that 10 to 15 years ago, um, businesses, consultancies, they're largely focused on business targets and results and it was all process driven. Um, so they focused on targets. Then about five to ten years ago, then they went, oh, no, it's all about customers. It's all about customers. It's about customer satisfaction. And then about two years ago, they went, oh, no, no, not about customers. It's about well-being of your employees. It's about employee engagement. Um, <laughs> so I've got this, this model. It's called BEST model. So the T is, uh, is, is business targets, and the S is customer satisfaction, and then the E is employee engagement. But then the B is leadership behaviours. Because what I fundamentally believe is that leaders and their behaviours create the environment that allows people to succeed. And that's kind of what we started to talk about in the um, in the previous podcast. But what I want to do now is like yeah. just really shine a light on what is a high-performance person and how can somebody be a high-performance person. Is that all right? Yeah, of course. That's right. brilliant. Okay, so that, that best model that I've just gone through, targets, customer satisfaction, employee Love engagement, that. and yeah. leadership behavior, does that, does that resonate with you? Is that, does that work? Yeah, definitely. I think I, I, it's the first time I've heard it, Lee, but I think it's really powerful. And part of the reason I like it 
in the way you've described is that I don't think those other elements of targets and and, and and measuring success in those other ways are irrelevant. I think, like you say, I don't think it's an either or, you know, either we hit our targets or we focus on engagement of our staff. I think it's a both and. You can both deliver your targets, but engage your staff at the same time. So I like the I like the the more rounded approach of rather than focus on every on just one thing, see it as a as a as a wider a wider combination. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Okay, good. Good. So how does somebody um have yeah. or get a winning mindset? Wow, okay. Um I think it's a really fascinating question. I think, I'd, so I'd, I'd start with, there's a couple of characteristics that I've seen when I've been interviewing some of these high performers that uh, that you mentioned in the introduction. I uh, have identified a couple of characteristics. One of the things that I often find is there's a real humility with these high performers, that they're open-minded to uh, to new ideas all the time. There's a, there's a humility that they don't believe they've got all the answers themselves and a curiosity to be open-minded to uh, to look for it. And I think that's um, that's almost a real underrated virtue. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they believe everything they hear. I remember hearing Alex Ferguson once describe it as Ryan Giggs that he used the phrase where he says he's got a highly attuned bullshit detector in his head, uh, but he's still prepared to listen. So he'll listen, but with a, a bit of a critical eye over yeah. it. So I think that humility um, and that openness is a, is, is a real common characteristic. Yeah. I remember years ago, I read, um, I read an autobiography of a guy called Andrew Oldham, who was the Rolling Stones' first manager. And he tells a brilliant anecdote in it about where, because he managed Jimi Hendrix um, when he first came over from America. And he says that, He'd, he'd been to meet Jimi Hendrix uh, in New York and they agreed to go for a night out and he said and they went to a nightclub where a guitarist was playing he said and in the first couple of minutes Andrew Oldham said it was obvious this guitarist was hopeless and he said to Jimi Hendrix come on let's leave we'll go somewhere else and Jimi Hendrix said to him no he said I'm not leaving he said this guy is that bad he might do something that's brilliant by accident and I want to stay and find out if he does and I always love that example because even a guy that went on to be regarded as the greatest guitarist um, of his generation was open-minded that he was prepared to listen to somebody that maybe didn't have his talent to see if there was something he could learn. And I think that humility is often underrated but not always recognised from these guys because we often get distracted by the outcome of their performance rather than the seeds of it. I think another thing um, that is really powerful and it's linked to this is um, who they choose to surround themselves with. Um, and again, the phrase that, I'd, that I'd, I've, I've coined for this is I talk about you either surround yourself with truth tellers or time tellers. And it comes from, um, I was doing some work a few years ago with a coach, um, a rugby coach, and he was in his coaching box and he was really struggling. The team were getting beat and he turned to his assistants and he said, have you got any ideas what we do next? And one of his assistants said to him, there's 20 minutes left. And it was when we did a review afterwards, I said to the coach, I went, what was the point of him? Yeah. Because all he did was tell you the time and I could have told you the time and I know nothing about rugby. 
So at that moment in time, it looked like you were looking for someone to come and give you some ideas or just tell you the truth about what you'd done. That maybe to prompt you to think something differently. Yeah. And that's what I've seen from a lot of us and telling them how good they are. They're surrounded by people that understand a little bit of the journey that they're on and are prepared to be valuable in the advice and twist could say on starting this is just having the courage to give it a yeah. go. You know, um, and again, I think we hear a lot of things about um, avoiding risk. We just have to have the courage. We'll get it wrong. We'll cock up. We'll make mistakes. We'll fall. But having the courage just to keep going and, and starting it, you know, and I think we get badly served by a lot of entrepreneurs within, um, you know, like when you see people like that Peter Jones or Alan Sugar yeah. and people like that on television and they give you this idea that, oh, you know what, you should just go for it and you shouldn't, even if you're scared, you should do it. And I always think that's really bad advice because if you're not scared, there's something wrong with you. Well, you know, like take your example of, you know, you, it took you, 15 years before you set up on, with your own yeah. business and started doing this. And that's because, you know, you need to have the confidence to build it up and feel that you can sustain it and you've got a family to look after and you've got responsibilities. So you're not just going to throw everything in just on the on a whim of an idea. So I think courage is one of these virtues that courage isn't about being reckless. It's about surrounding yourself with good people and being humble enough to... to um, to know when the time is right for you, but then the courage is actually going for it when all those characteristics are in place. Yeah, those things that you just mentioned, that can you, are, are they learnable? Yeah. So can you, can you learn them, or are they just part of your character right from, right from the off? Well, that's a brilliant question because that goes right to the heart of the nature-nurture debate, and the answer is nobody knows. Yeah. Um, and anyone that tells you that... That, that that they do is either a liar or they or, or they don't understand it because the nature nurture debate goes at the idea that how much of your behaviour is part of what you describe as our character and how much of it is learned behaviour and 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 the disagreement within neuroscience community is somewhere between ten and forty percent of your behaviour is part of our character, which is a huge area of yeah. debate within within an area like that. And I don't think it'll be resolved, certainly not within our lifetimes. But what nobody's arguing about is, if you look at it from the opposite angle, what nobody's arguing about is the vast majority of our behaviour is learned behaviour. So by definition, if you learn something, you can unlearn it. So if you, so the way I sometimes explain this to people is, I say, take a really, um, a, an example, um, like somebody wanted to lose weight or something like that. And if somebody came to you and said, oh, listen, Lee, I'm looking to lose a few pounds away. Uh, have you got any advice? You wouldn't start the conversation by saying to them, well, why are you going to bother? You were born fat. Genetically, you, you're programmed to be overweight. Because one, it's ridiculous, but two, it's crass and insulting. So what you would do is you'd start with them and say, right, well, let's look at patterns of behavior that you're into and it might be with uh, this individual they might be comfort eating or they might be grazing between meals and things like that so you identify a pattern of behavior and say do you think we can break that pattern and 
you look at maybe the genesis of where it came from, and it might have been that when they were a child, when they were upset or distressed, some well-intentioned adult gave them a bar of chocolate. The endorphin release of eating that chocolate made them feel better. So they've developed a neural pathway that says when I'm upset, I go and eat sugary food. So you look at how do you break that pattern of behavior to do it. Now, what's interesting is when people struggle to lose weight or it doesn't happen fast enough, those same people will come back and say to you, oh, I can't lose weight. It's, you know, I'm big boned or my mom and dad were fat. It's just how I'm programmed. And people will fall into that idea of, because what they're trying to do is they almost try to uh, uncouple their behavior from who they are. They try to absolve themselves of responsibility by going, oh, it's not my fault. I was born like this. It's, it's due to circumstances rather than down to me. So I think the nature nurture stuff, we don't know how much of it is in part of our character and yeah. things like that. But I still think there's an awful lot of these behaviors that can still be learned and adopted regardless of our starting position. Yeah, yeah love it. So are, are you a high performance person? Um, oh, that's really, um, it's a really, it's a really tricky question because I think in some areas um, I'd say um, I, I try to demonstrate some of the characteristics, but in others I'm not. So I think, I think understanding your areas of competency um, it, 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 it's really interesting. So there's some areas that I, that, so it, it, I'm trying to think of an example, but if you ask my wife about me and my capabilities of doing DIY, yeah. she'd describe me as the very opposite of high performance because I'm useless at it. And it's not, it's not an area I've got any interest in and I certainly don't have any real competence at it. So I think to describe myself as high performance um, in that area is is, is is a complete misnomer. But I think there are areas where I try and push myself to do the highest performance that I'm capable of, and whether that's um, in terms of um, doing some of the writing that I love doing or sometimes um, trying to work with teams and help them. I think I, I try to demonstrate some characteristics of high performers. I'm, I'm a bit loath to describe myself as one because I... I, I I wouldn't want to come across as being arrogant or anything like that, but I do try to demonstrate it in certain areas of competence. Yeah, okay, so it's, it's a comp... I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I, I heard a guy called Charlie Munger. He's Warren Buffett's um, uh, mate in the Berkshire Halfway group, and he, he says that he would describe himself as a high performer around his areas of competency, but he says, I don't veer too far away from my areas of competency where I know I'm good at, I'm good at what I can do. But anything that goes beyond that, he said, I'm happy to outsource it and defer to people that are experts in those worlds. So I think if you think about high performance, I think everybody has the capability of being a high performer around certain areas. Yeah, yeah. so is that, is that one of the key criteria then, knowing what you're good at? Is that one of the, the key um, elements of being a high performer? That's a really powerful point, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it. So that starts to tap into a concept that um, that has been interesting on this podcast. We were talking before we started recording on some of these high performers, and I think one of the things that that has come across is a concept in psychology known as the Dunning Kruger law. And the Dunning Kruger law is named after two psychologists from Cornell University, Dunning and Kruger. And what they identified is. Um, 
this idea that if you're good at something, you're also smart enough to be able to explain why you're good at it. So what you'll find is high performers can explain why they're good at a particular area of competency because they've studied it and they can break it down into the, into the component parts. Now, if you flip that on its head, what we also know is that if you're bad at something, you're too stupid to know why you're bad at it. Yeah. So a good example to illustrate the point of the Dunning-Kruger law is if you think of programs like X Factor or Bitten's Got Talent, the bit that everybody loves is the early stages when uh, the idiots turn up to audition. And the funny thing is when you hear somebody that sounds like a cat being strangled telling you that they're going to sing like Mariah Carey, that's funny for us to watch because what you the, because it's the Dunning-Kruger law playing out. We like their levels of delusion. Yeah. They don't understand what a good singer is, so they're too stupid to realise how bad they are in comparison. So I think that's a really good point, that you need to be self-aware enough to know what you're good at and why you're good at it to be able to explain it. So then when you go outside of that area of competency, you understand that I don't, I don't know what I'm doing here. And therefore, I know that I, I'm not going to kid myself that I'm good at it. Yeah, okay. So if, if just taking it back to the, the best model and leadership behaviours creating the environments, if, if a leader believes that they are competent, how, what is, yeah. uh, how, I guess, how can we open people's eyes to what, is, what does make a good leader, what is a competent leader, so that we can not expose it, but help people understand it more? Yeah, well, and, and again, it's a great question, which takes us back to that initial answer of some of it is having the humility as a leader to go, well, maybe I'm, I'm open to the idea that I want to understand it rather than assume I know what a great leader is. I'm always happy to, to learn from it. I mean, I, I'm often bemused at the amount of leaders I hear that don't read or don't, or don't do anything in the way of self-development. And you go... Why can you not? Like, if you're going to do the job, why why wouldn't you at least have the interest to explore ideas out there? So having that openness comes back to it. And then the second point I said when you asked the initial question, surrounding yourself with people that are going to tell you the truth rather than the time. So one of the, the, the way that I, that I tend to do this when I work with leaders is I start with a really, excuse me, a really simple exercise that I call success leaves clues. And the exercise of that is I say to them, when you're good, why are you good? So I get them to tell me a, a performance that they would argue is exceptional, whether that's uh, a relationship they have with a client or a member of staff or a customer, or it might be a quarterly result, or it might be their best ever sales deal they pulled off. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You say to them, you set the parameters of what, of what we're going to describe as excellent. And then we're going to break it down and look at the composite parts of why you were excellent. And what you'll find is what, what, what comes out of that are really clear behaviours. And then what you say is, right, now let's look at how do we demonstrate those behaviours more consistently. So the difference between a, a, a high performer and an average performer is that everyone has bad days, but the gap between your best and your worst days is narrower than everyone else's. Yeah. So everyone has the bad day, but what you find is, and this goes back to the Dunning-Kruger law that says, if you think of sport, the best teams when they get beat can understand why they got beat and know how to fix it. And most of those reasons will be internal. The, the average performer when they get beat immediately starts to externalise the defeat and blame referees or the opposition or, or the conditions or something went wrong. 
So what you would try and do with leaders is you'd say to them, when you're good, why are you good? And then you identify behaviours. And then when things don't go well or they don't have the success, you can start to lay the blueprint of their of their good behaviours over it to see what was missing and how you fit and how you narrow that gap. Yeah. So if you if you start with behaviours in that example, and and if if it's thinking that drives behaviour, how do you get them to open up on um, what the thinking was that that created or generated that behaviour? Because the behaviour is the output, isn't it? Um, so how can how, yes. how can you tap into the to the thinking? To get them to see, actually... Well, that's where the success leaves clues starts from, Lisa. Then you would get them to see about, so what drove that behaviour? What did you think you were doing yeah. at that moment in time? So that's where it requires a proper deep analysis of of the behaviours that, that were consistently present. So I'll give you an example. I did some work a few years ago with um, a team, um, a Premier League football team, that were in real trouble. And what we spoke about there was we we, we did the same thing, success leaves close. When you're good, why are you good? We looked at their best performance. And we narrowed it down to three behaviours. That The phrase I use is we talk about trademark behaviours. And the three we came up with were um, they were resilient, so they kept going even when things didn't go yeah. well. They were sensible in their work ethic. And the third one was they stuck together. And then we said, right, so how do you demonstrate these more regularly? And then we got them to go through examples where they hadn't done it. So give you a really simple example. There was one where there was two guys going through on goal and one of the guys shoots and he misses. And my interest wasn't the guy that misses. It was the guy that was running through with him that immediately started to have a tantrum. Yeah. Because when we explored his thinking, we said, what were you doing there? And initially he went, oh, I was trying to tell him he should have passed me the ball. And I said, yeah, yeah, but we timed this tantrum that went on for like nearly 32 seconds. Wow. So he said, so telling him he should have passed you the ball is something that could have taken two seconds to do. You've taken 32 seconds and you're remonstrating, you're screaming, you're shaking your head, you're stamping your feet. That's not telling him to pass you the ball. What were you doing? And when we explored his thinking, he went, I wasn't letting him know that he should have passed me the ball. I was letting the rest of the stadium know. <laughs> and I was also demonstrating that I wouldn't have missed like he yeah. did. So then when we were able to go back to our blueprint and one of the trademark behaviours was sticking together, we said, how does your behaviour in that tantrum demonstrate the behaviour of sticking together? And he went, it doesn't, does it? I said, no, it doesn't, which means that there's a choice here. You either change your behaviour or, we'll or we'll change you and get somebody in that's prepared to demonstrate yeah. it. And very quickly, once we'd explored his thinking and got him to recognise that that wasn't helping the team, it was undermining trust and confidence, he started to adopt and change his behaviours. So that's where that analysis needs to, you start with the behaviours, but then you explore the thinking of why we need to do yeah. this and, and, and how you can eradicate it. Why do you do what you do, Damien? Why? Well, right. Um, I love it, first of all. Um, so, um, but I've loved it from a really young age. So I can't remember if we spoke about this in the last podcast, but um, I grew up uh, uh, in a boxing gym. So my dad was a boxing coach in uh, in inner city Manchester. So my playground was a boxing club from a really young age. And what I witnessed, um, I had, forgive the pun, a, a ringside seat, was that um, I saw my dad taking kids from really quite difficult backgrounds, um, and 
a lot of them never went on. It, it wasn't about teaching them boxing. It was about teaching them life skills. So, for example, that in this particular, in the gym, you weren't allowed to come in and use bad language. Now, it was common um, amongst the kids, but the minute they crossed that threshold, they wouldn't use bad language. And the thinking that was explained to them was, if your response to a setback is to start effing and blinding, that indicates you lack the discipline to keep your mouth shut. And if you lack discipline to do that, you lack the discipline in the ring. And if you lack the discipline in the ring, you're going to get hurt. So there was a really clear analysis of why discipline was one of the trademark behaviours of the club. And you saw that adopted by kids that came into the club and were never going to box, but they took that and applied it to their own lives and went on to, to be successful from quite difficult circumstances. But at the same time, you saw some that went into that sport that ended up becoming world champions at it. So... I saw from a very young age this idea of how powerful coaching and culture could be. Those two things combined really intrigued me. So um, my dad saw me box. So I did box, uh, but my dad encouraged me. I think he saw how bad I was at it and said, don't do this, go down the academic <laughs> route. But um, so I, I, I was lucky enough to, to, to grow up in that environment, but then equally to have parents that encouraged me to go down the academic route. And, my interest was to understand, like we often talk at university, we don't do research, we do me-search. So we're often trying to make sense of our own lives and our own background. So I think that's what's led me to try and understand those elements of coaching and culture and how they can be combined. And that's been, and that then drives a lot of my interest in terms of working with, um, say, elite coaches in um in sport and business, I suppose, is that I know how lonely that job can be. I know how difficult it can be. I know how demanding it is. And I think that if you can be a bit of a trusted advisor to those guys and they know that you've got their back, that you, you can empathise with them and you're there to look out for them, I think that gives me an awful lot of satisfaction. Yeah, no, good, good. What's the dream? A dream... For, uh, yeah, for me your, personally, so, yeah, for you personally, because you, you're doing all of these things, right? And I think, and I think, bloody amazing things. Speaking to all of these these people, writing these books that help so many people, understanding um, the the secrets of success and high performance and stuff. But but for for what for what purpose? For what? Where, where are you going to take it? What are you doing with it? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question in terms of because uh, we've always got this idea that we wouldn't feel like we're making progress and we wouldn't feel that that we have to move on and 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 I think over the years, especially as I've got a bit older, I, I think I've started to revise that thinking of progress is measured by um, being number one or being top of the charts or being a bestseller and things like that because. I'm not sure that, like, people sometimes ask me and say, do you know how many copies of books you sold? And the honest answer is I've got no idea. And the reason I've got no idea is because I think madness lies that way. Because if you're chasing popularity or chasing numbers like that, you're never going to be happy. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of it now is about trying to internalise it and think about... Um, there's a couple of things that, me that I've, I measure my success on. One is, um, can you make a positive difference to people? So I hope that people that might read the book, if they're interested, it, it might help them. I hope people that listen to 
this podcast, that series that we were talking about, if it helps people and they find it interesting, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. And then the second measure is, yeah. do I do I enjoy it? That and if I, I I've spent too long doing uh, jobs, especially when I was younger, where I used to, um, I used to look in my diary on a Sunday night. I'd look in my diary, see what I had uh, on that week, and and the only groan at the prospect of having to do it and I remember making myself a promise that I would I would try and get a life where I would never not look forward to what I had in the diary do you know what I mean so I'll agree to do something yeah. because I look forward to doing it and that genuinely is success for me that if I can look at that and think does it make a positive difference to people and do you look forward to doing it and enjoying it I think that is a yeah. is uh, is my measure of success. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And does do you find? So, I mean, you've spoken to a whole host of really, really, really successful people. Um, and has there been? Um, and the reason why I'm asking this question has there been a moment in their life that's, that that they've used as a trigger point that's kind of focused them, or? Has it been? Yeah. Has it been something else? The reason the reason why I'm asking it is because um, 18 months ago, on the um, well, on the fifth fifth of July, 2018, um, I, I lost my best mate through uh, for his third bout of cancer and, and stuff. And from that minute, my life has been I've been more laser focused and driven yeah. to to deliver to to deliver something. So I mean, in fact, I, I can I can do that. So. Uh, that, that's that's a picture of me and him at Anfield with the boy. I don't know whether you could see that then. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So uh, yeah, so that's that's me and me and the boy. So this this picture here, which it doesn't really work on an audio um, podcast. No, no. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah I could see. Yeah. So that's so, so that's that's Chris there, um, and this was a day when when the. Th- me and his boys and um, and my boy, we went we went to Anfield, and but like a few months before. I'd said to him, I said, uh, he said he was going to come into some money um, extracting his pension and stuff like that. He said, I'll set you up in your own consultancy. I know you want to do it. I know you want to um, get off and and you want to set yourself up and and go for it. And I said, no, no, I don't want that. I said, your perspective on life has completely changed since finding out you were terminal Um, and and like little things wouldn't bother him and all that type of stuff. So I said, what I like, I'd love three lessons off you through your eyes now that I can share with your boys, I can share with my kids because they're far more valuable than a few grand that's going to set me up in a in a in a consultancy. I can do that in a, in a few weeks, months, time, whatever. Um, so that picture there, that's uh, we were on the way home from that picture when he when he came up with the third one, which was which was time is limited. So that was the third the third lesson. And I was with him on the night of the hospice when he took his last breath, and um, I went I went to the wow. toilet and came, came back out, and his chest went up. And that, that was it. That's, all, that, that's, that's the last time he, he took a breath. And, and then from that minute on, I was like, oh, fucking hell. I've got to go for it now. So time is limited, just stuck in my head. And then from that minute, I, I started this podcast. I, I, I um, wow. sat in wheels, the, the setting up the own business yeah. um, and stuff like that. So and what from were that the other moment, two? I've been more focused. And oh, yeah, okay. Um, so when I asked him, um, he was like, I wish you'd have asked for the money. Um, uh, rather than the lessons, but he'll think about it. So I went back a couple of weeks afterwards, and um, and he says when him and his, his ex partner were splitting up, um, that he tried to be somebody that he wasn't. Uh, he he tried to be somebody that he wasn't that he thought that she would that she would like, um, but she, 
she didn't like him anymore he didn't like himself at that point in time and he was really unhappy and they still ended up splitting up so he said um he said always be yourself is the first one no matter what just be yourself yeah. at all at all points in time and then a couple of weeks later um i i kept so i was working away at the time but i could come back and then go and see him in the hospital and he said uh he said, uh, he said, every time you come back, you come and see me. He said, when we were growing up, so we, we grew up together. We were like um, two years old when we lived on the same street yeah. and all the way through to, to being 39, he was, uh, we were mates. And, and he went, you come, you, you visit me every, every time you get. He said, one of our other mates rings every, at 12 o'clock every day when he's on his lunch break. He said, uh, he said we had opportunities through life to choose different paths, to go yeah. different directions. Um, but he said, uh, he said, but we didn't. We stayed together. We were all, so he said, and make good friends is the second one because you never know when you're going to need them. Oh. You never know when when those people are going to be important to you. So he said, yeah, always be yourself. Make good friends. And then on the way back from Anfield for that tour, we were like, um, I had to wheel him around in a in a wheelchair and stuff. Uh, he couldn't do all of the things that we did, but we had a private tour. It was amazing. And he went, I so wished I could have done this sooner. I so wished I could have um, not been a burden on you and, and had you wheeling me around. Oh, we, we, we could have done it. So we could have done wow. it a lot, a lot of time before. So he said, time is limited. So act act now. And then when, he, when I saw him take that breath and his chest went up and that was it, that was, that was when I, in my head I was like, right, bloody hell, I've got to actually do something now. So then coming back to the question, yeah, yeah. Is, do you find that people have a, an event, something that kind of triggers them, that makes them more focused, yeah. or or not? It's a really really long question. That yeah, it's a brilliant question. Sorry, I'm just I've got goosebumps from the story of your friend. There, I think it's such a moving example of it. Um, to answer the question, yes, um, it's a question that often intrigues me. Uh, Sigmund Freud described it as the golden seed. He said, at some stage in your life, somebody comes along and sows a golden seed that makes you believe in yourself long before you might have the evidence to do so. Um, and it always intrigues me of asking people who sold your golden seed, who, what was your golden seed moment? Because most people can identify. Sometimes it might be a parent. Sometimes it might be a teacher. Um, it, but there will be a moment that really sticks out in your mind as a moment when, yeah, I think I can do this. And, you know, it sounds like your fr your friend and the wisdom he was passing on towards the end was a really powerful golden seed moment for you. But I think we all have it. Um, I mean, this is a question that I d I've asked pretty frequently on the podcast series uh, where um, I asked Kelly Holmes uh, um, this and she spoke really movingly about the teacher in her life that had done it. She said uh, she was a mixed-race girl living in a predominantly white village in Kent. She said uh, she'd been in care homes because her mum had her very young and struggled to look after her. She said I was dyslexic, I was rubbish at school, I was getting sent out. She said and I ran in a race and did really well and my teacher came along and said to me, you could be really good at this. And she said I can remember the moment really profoundly wow. because it was the first time anyone had ever said that I could be good at something and that gave her the confidence to do it. And I think we all, like, my moment was, um, I, I, I was lucky enough, I got a scholarship to uh, a school um, and really struggled when I got there and ended up getting myself uh, expelled for fighting. And um, my parents were really upset about it. And there was two teachers that spoke up for me that went to the head teacher and uh, said, we think he's um, he's a good lad, really. I think he's just 
sort of struggling. He's, he's just trying to find his way. And they spoke up for me and sort of promised that if uh, they'd take me under the wings. And like that, to me, was a real seminal moment in my life because these guys had no reason to put the neck on the line for me. Um, you know, and unfortunately, like one of them asked me to go and do a leaving speech at his retirement wow. day. And the other teacher's in his 80s now, and I'd, I'd still keep in touch with him and take him out. I tried to once or twice a year, me and my brother take him out for a bite yeah. to eat. Um, and I think those moments do stick with us, you know, like your friend, that last, that last breath, that really evocative image that you spoke about and almost passing on that courage and that, with that last breath to say, come on Lee, let's, let's just get on with it. Don't waste any more time doing that. I think everybody has a golden seed moment always looking for one. Uh, so that's quite interesting what you said there. So because I've had this conversation with a few people and 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 some of them say, Well, nothing's ever happened to me. I've not got any memorable moment. Um there's there's nothing that's that's triggered anything different. Is it that is it their awareness of that? Is it just because it's not happened? because um, you've said twice now everybody does have one. Um but do they? Well, I mean, that, very possibly not. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really good challenge that some people um, are, or maybe is that awareness that maybe the time isn't right for this, uh, it's happened. I think that's probably a more accurate way of describing it. I mean, I often use the metaphor that I think I, I think we all have um, like the metaphor I sometimes use with people is that if you think of life as a bit of a game of cards, now I'm not that well versed in card playing, but I think if you if you play a game of cards, what I do know is sometimes when you're playing poker, I understand the phrase, you have to stick or twist. Whatever your hand is, you've either got to stick with it and accept that's the hand you've got or you twist and you gamble for something better. I think we all have at least three or four of those stick or twist moments in our life where you either say, you know what, I'm going to stay here for the long haul and I'm yeah. going to go for the pension and the benefits and the security of being part of a business or I'm going to throw my hand in and say, well, I'm going to gamble on on, on going alone yeah. or trying a different business or doing things like that. And I think we all have it. I think what what saddens me sometimes is people let the moment pass and they don't make a conscious decision to stick or twist and the game just carries on playing. And yeah. then years later, they go, oh, I could have done that. Or, or, you know, I reckon I could have yeah. done what you're doing, Lee. And the point is, you go, yeah, you probably could have done, but yeah. you didn't You didn't stick or twist. You did neither. You just let the game pass you by. And now you're trying to, and now you're trying to impose a different set of rules on it. And So I think we all have yeah. those moments. And I think it's just accepted that there's no right answer sticking or twisting you'll never know what the right answer is, but you have to make a conscious decision to do one or the other. Yeah, so I've got another bit of the conversation that you said earlier on about um, um, that that people have got to know what it is that they're good at. Um, and I think you used Warren Buffett's um, mate. And Charlie he Munger, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he only does stuff that he's, he's capable to do and everything else is, is past. So if you've got clarity on what it is you're good at, then maybe you're more maybe you're more aware of that moment that's then taking it to the next step of that. So, because there's some people I speak to now that 30, 40, 50 years old ago, oh, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Um, and if you may be in that mindset, yeah. where you're just kind of like 
going like this. Maybe maybe that moment will never will never appear because you don't actually know you're never going to be ready for it. Do you know? So yeah, possibly. I mean that, that that ties into the like Jim Collins talks about the hedgehog concept, doesn't he? So he talks about you have to know what your area of competence is, what you're good at, then the thing that can make you money that drives your economic engine. And then the thing where you can make the biggest difference. And I think if, when those three things combine, that's where people can go, oh, right, I'm going to go for this, whether it's an idea for a book or a business or whether it's about how they're going to progress a career or whatever it is, those elements have to be there. And I think if, you, if, if you're if you not... But it's not that people... I would say it's not that those moments don't happen. They do. I think it's just you being aware of what when those moments are happening rather yes. than just letting it pass you by. Like I say, that poker analogy of the game will carry on playing whether you stick or twist. But yeah. So you have to impose yourself on it and make that call. Yeah, perfect. So um, I want to just take you back a little bit now to write your very first book, Liquid Thinking. Yeah. Where were yeah, yeah. you? Where were you when you had the concept... Yeah. Liquid thinking. Oh, right. I, I could tell you the exact spot on the motorway where where I was uh, at the time. Yeah, yeah, I remember it. So uh, the concept was that I'd, I'd, so I'd, I'd been working as a coach and then I went into the corporate world um, and I had the idea of, um, so I, I felt I needed to get a proper job. And uh, so I ended up um, be, um, applying to different companies and I had no background other than I said listen I've I've, I've got a background in organisational psychology and I've worked as a football coach and a boxing coach and uh, a company called Unilever said okay we'll take you on so they put me on this scheme and they ended up um, having a brilliant time they sent me out to go and work in New York for a year I went down to London for two years and uh, I, I had no idea what I was doing but I was I, I just like this idea of making a difference and sort of trying to harness organisational psychology. And then they sent me to go and work in the factories in Port Sunlight, and uh, I absolutely hated it for the first eight months. I just hated it. it like working in a factory environment, there was lots of rules and regulations that I felt like a fish out of water. Um, and I'd, 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 and I was starting to think that I'd sort of taken a bit of a wrong turn. And I'll tell you where I was. I was on the M6 motorway near, yeah. you know where the Tickle Trout is? So, you, oh, yeah. so it's your neck of the woods. You know, yeah. on that M6 where um, you start to head back towards Manchester just as you go past that. And I was on that uh, moment and I'd been doing a lot of stuff with them about trying to sort of uh, create a culture where where we could improve performance because we were classed as one of the worst factories in Europe. And I'd been doing a lot with them in terms of ideas about how we could turn it around. And um, so I'd, I'd, I'd really come to life after this eight-month period where I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to twist there. I'm going to give this a go rather than keep complaining about it. We'd started to generate some real change. And I was trying to think of an idea. I, I wanted to almost give them a toolkit or a manual about how we could do it. And... Um, I couldn't find one because the audience we were talking about was if you gave them an academic textbook, they would never read it. If you gave them anything that was too light, they were too cynical to take it seriously. So I was trying to find a, uh, a book like a, that could become our toolkit for what we were trying to do. And I couldn't find one. And I was on that stretch of the motorway and it occurred to me, I thought, write it yourself. So 
I can remember it with such clarity that I went home that night and started immediately just working on this idea of drafting it out. And I literally had no idea what I was doing in terms of writing a book. And I think if anyone would have told me how to write a book, I wouldn't ever have started it because it, it would have just appeared too difficult. So I went home and started writing the idea for this book and just drafting it. And I'm, I, one of the ideas was I made a list of people I liked and admired that I wanted to go and interview. Um, and I worked on the idea that we're only ever six degrees of separation from anybody. So I thought, I'll work out who do I know that knows them. So just by having that naive point of view, I ended up interviewing Muhammad Ali. Uh, yeah, I interviewed wow. Richard Branson, um, people like Alex Ferguson. I managed to get in with them and interview them. So I was writing, doing the interviews, trying to relate it to the work I'd done at uni and 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 doing that and I produced this book really quite quickly and uh, I, I remember reading it thinking these guys in the factory would still not read this because they would they would have an excuse the cynics would go yeah Richard Branson's mum and dad were rich that's why he was successful or you know why are you telling me about Muhammad Ali because he was physically gifted and that's not the same for me and then I had this idea that I'd got to know a lot of the lads over the over the time that I'd been working there. And there were some of the guys that had some really brilliant stories to tell. So there was a lad called Steve Byrne, and he, he'd come from quite a difficult background, and he wanted to give his two daughters the education that he felt he'd never had the chance to get. And he wanted to get them in the catchment area for the best high school in the area. He couldn't afford to move. So he bought a plot of land and built his own house from scratch. Started in three years, built his own house from scratch, got him in the catchment area and got his daughters into school. There was another lad who, uh, had, had, um, his wife had had cancer um, and she'd recovered. But the hospital had said that a big part of her recovery was the positive attitude that her and her husband had had. So there was all stories like this that were really inspiring in their own right. So I approached the lads in the factory and said, can I tell you a story? And then what I tried to do was show how Steve that had built his own house was done exactly the same principles of success that Richard Branson had done to build a business. They'd just done it with different means and different starting positions. Or, um, yeah. the, like there was a, like there was another guy that was a rally driver. He was a motocross champion. And I showed how his mindset when he went into a race was the same as Muhammad Ali's when he was going into, and, the reason it was interesting was because it became really difficult for the cynics in the factory to dismiss the idea of the book when there was Andy that worked over on line three who was yeah. featured in the book. And yeah. they knew they were in the same class at him at school and they were working in the same place. So how can I dismiss that when I know him and you're showing the same principles? So the idea was I wrote this book and it was never intended um, for sale. So I produced it um, just for the factory, the guys in the factory. And we became our own manual and we, I called it liquid thinking. And then it got quite a lot of interest in the HR press because it was a bit unusual. I, I can see now that it was a little bit different what we'd done. And then I started getting uh, different organizations from outside of Unilever approaching me saying, can I get a copy of this book? I've not, I've heard, I've read about it. What are you doing? So, um, I, I was just sending it out to people. I, any spare copies I got, I was just sending it because it was this idea of if I can help you, of course I can. There you go. You can have a copy of it. And then um, while I was doing that, I wrote the follow-up book, which was called Liquid Leadership, which did some of the same principles. Um, and then and then after that, 
uh, I got approached by a publisher that said, can we take this idea and, and start selling it for the general public? But that was three years later, but I'd never wrote the book with the idea of getting it out and start selling wow. the book. It was, it was intended to be a manual for the uh, guys in the factory that was that I was working with at the time. And it was basically the essence of how do you make positive change happen to, yeah. uh, to deliver high performance? Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing that because what I really love about what the story you've just told there is is how you made it relatable to the audience that you were pitching it to. So you had, you had the stories of the the, the big names, the, the the Fergie, the Muhammad Ali, but then you tried to distill it into a meaningful way that actually that that people could just relate to it, and then and then you joined the dots. Well, well, I, oh, I, I still do that in terms of because there's a word right and i can and the word i, I wrote in the book was gestate so i it, the, it was the idea of you know sometimes ideas just need time to gestate and grow and i remember showing it to one of the lads in the factory and he went what the fuck's that and i went gestate yeah. and he went well, what does that mean and i went it means where it can just sort of take its time to brew and grow and he went why don't you say that then instead of gestate and I use that as a, a, as a, it might sound a bit of a silly example, but the point was because I was getting feedback off people that were saying, strip it of bullshit, take the jargon out. You're not aiming it at an academic, you're aiming it at the lads on line three. And, and that's not to insult the lads on line three, but they weren't natural readers. And if you wanted them yes. to read a book, you can't be like patronizing them with words that they don't understand. They don't want to feel stupid. And that's been, I mean, I talk about that in so many businesses anyway, that say, who, who, like, I remember when um, the business that we had, they had like these organizational competencies that guys were expected to, to measure themselves against in their annual appraisals. I remember one guy coming to me and going, I can't fill in my appraisal in. And I said, why not? And he went, you don't have the right material. And I said, you need a pen and a piece of paper. What more material do you want? <laughs> and he went, no, I don't. He said, it need the, I, I need to liberate rigor, and I don't have a rigor. <laughs> and it was a competency. The competency the business had was, how, how do you liberate rigor? And this guy wow. thought rigor was, was, was a piece of kit. Now, you could either laugh at him or you could go, something's failed in the process here that somebody thinks that phrase is an acceptable term. Confident. that most people would understand. And it's probably been created in a vacuum of similar-minded people with a similar education. But it doesn't necessarily play out in a factory just outside of Birkenhead. And yeah. I think that's um, a really powerful lesson that I yeah. got at a very early age of. Have a clear idea of who your audience is here so I'd make it accessible for them, not, not, not for who who you think you're speaking to. Be clear about who yeah. you really are, trying to direct your, your message to. So, so do you change the way that you talk and your messages? So if you're talking to a board or if you're talking yeah. to a workforce, do, do you change the way you communicate or are you just you? Uh, um, I'm, I'm quite mindful of it. And I think I did, I'm reminded as you're asking that question there of like the message that your friend passed on to you about this idea of being authentic. Um, I, 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 I try just to be myself, if that makes sense. And I think I might sometimes alter it in terms of I might not use bad language or I might be a bit more measured or circumspect in, in the way I, I, uh, I would try and explain it depending on 
who you're speaking to. But um, I think I've learned over the years that trying to pretend to be somebody else or trying to adopt the air of trying to be clever or yeah. being smart doesn't doesn't suit me. It's not it's not appropriate. So I try and say the essence of who I am. I try to remain uh, authentic. But you might alter the way you explain something depending on your audience, and that's not to be a smart ass. That's just to try and mean that your message is is received equally well. So we were talking earlier about um, a job I did recently with some lads in Hull, yeah. and the examples I used with them was more basing it around rugby league that I know is a religion in Hull, that I probably wouldn't go and explain that to uh, somebody down south that wouldn't follow the sport or... You know, I, I, I was doing some work recently with uh, the Olympic boxers over in Belfast, um, and the the examples I was using there were, were drawn more from my own uh, childhood and growing up from the boxing club than what I, I remember saying to them once that I've never applied some of these principles to the world of Anthony Joshua or Tyson Fury that we were talking about, but that was appropriate to that audience that you wouldn't necessarily share elsewhere. Yeah, completely. So how do you keep a log of all of the different stories and lessons? And and I guess, so because you've got a whole host of different stories, a whole host of different lessons, how do you remember them yeah. all and relate them to the different situations? How, how do you keep a track of, of, of everything? This thing is, so um, I, yeah. I always carry a notebook around with me uh, where I'm just constantly um, scribbling ideas down or I might have an idea that I just think, how do I develop that? Or I might yeah. try and... Um, think of a um, so say for example we were talking before about the Dunning-Kruger law and then I I remember spending a long time trying to think about how would you explain Dunning-Kruger law to to somebody to get them to understand it and um, Dunning and Kruger talk about a guy called MacArthur Wheeler which is where their interest came from this guy called MacArthur Wheeler um, he robbed banks in, in, in Pittsburgh and uh, he robbed two banks one morning and he got captured by the afternoon. And when they asked him, he was bemused as to why they captured him. And he said, and they said, well, why are you confused? You walked in, you weren't wearing a mask. You know, you, uh, there was CCTV, we caught you really easily. And he said, well, I sprayed lemon juice on my face. I didn't, I thought that, and he'd read that Invisible Link contained lemon juice. So he sprayed it on his face thinking it would make him invisible to the cameras. <laughs> and that was the genesis of the Dunning-Kruger law, that they went out wow. stupidly after me to not realise that yeah. point, which was where they investigated it from. So all, all points that you're trying to make, if you can combine it with a story, I often find it's just more effective. People might not remember the name Dunning-Kruger, but they'll remember the guy spraying lemon juice on his face or they'll remember the early stages of X Factor so they get the principle yeah. of it without necessarily having the name of it. So a lot of it is just he's just having that interest and trying to think about how would you explain this to somebody that doesn't have the same level of interest that you do and that's where I find just constantly scribbling ideas down in books. A lot of them yeah, are rubbish. Yeah. At ah, least it, yeah. you can try and then discern it. Yeah, perfect, perfect. So we, we spoke just before we hit record that you've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old. I've got a 7-year-old and a 4-year-old. Do you take yeah. the lessons of all of these high-performance people, of all of these people that you're working <laughs> with, and do you do you try to to help them? And, and, and if so, how do you help them? And is, is your next book going to be for kids? <laughs> um, the stuff with the kids 
it's hard, isn't it? You know, like I, I'm, I'm conscious of that old saying that it's cobblers' children always have the worst shoes, uh, and I'm conscious sometimes that I think the kids follow your example at this stage rather than rather than what you necessarily say to them, and I'm very mindful of that. Uh, so. Um, I, like, I've removed myself from a lot of social media um, over the last four or five months. And part of the reason was, was that uh, I noticed that it, it was taking up a lot of time. And I found it very, like my son had, start, had started to ask for a phone because he goes to big school next year and he wants to start playing on Playstations and things like that. And I thought, I can't start telling him that he needs to manage his time and be strict on that and yet being disciplined in uh, the way that I do it. Uh, so I've tried to sort of apply some of that stuff, but do it more from example, because I didn't want to be a hypocrite to him, that he could say, well, you're on your phone, and you're telling me that I can't have one because you're worried I'll yeah. spend time on it. So I've tried to remove myself from things like that to try and limit the temptation to, uh, to be distracted and things like that. So... I'd probably say that I'm, I'm mindful of some of this stuff, but I'm mindful of demonstrating it rather than just telling them. I don't want to be a gobshite to them. Uh, I'd rather be um, yeah. somebody that can actually try and role model some of it. So um, I think one of the things we do do with the children is um, we're really clear about uh, trademark behaviours. The three trademark behaviours that we always talk to the kids about is being kind, caring and sharing. And I think that's been a big lesson of, you know, it's not, you don't have to be great at something. You could just try your best at it. But yeah. what we do want you to do is you can always control how kind you are to others, how caring you are to each other and yourself and also, um, and how, how much you share. Um, so I think we're clear on those kind of trademarks. And then I think a big part of it with the kids at this age is just try and role model it and demonstrate it yourself in, in the way you conduct yourself. Um, but in terms of uh, writing uh, a book for kids, um, no, again, I think that comes back to circles of competency. Uh, I'm not sure I'd be particularly good at that. And uh, I, I think there's better qualified people out there to do that than what I feel I would be. Like, I, I, I'm sharing that stuff that we do with the kids, but... I don't know if I, I don't know how they would rank my effectiveness yeah, as a dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, no, I, I don't think that writing for kids would be uh, something that that I'd be particularly good at. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. So conscious of the conscious of the time, and so I guess what's next for Damien Hughes? Yeah, um, good question. Um, I, we were talking before about we're currently recording this while we're in the lockdown period due to the pandemic. Um, and I, I, I'm actually enjoying this period just for a chance to reflect and think. I think I think sometimes when what this has done for me and I suspect for a lot of people is it's forced us to, to slow down. And I think when you slow down, you appreciate how fast things were before. And, and I think when you're sometimes running like that, having the the ability to stop and think and reflect isn't always there. So I'm not sure is the answer, but I'm I'm enjoying um, the ambiguity of not knowing what to do, not having another target to go after uh, and yeah. to think a little bit more about what I do want to do next and, uh, and where I want to go. So we've spoke about this podcast series. Um, I feel really privileged that I got asked to 
to be involved in it with a guy called Jake Humphrey that is a presenter on BT Sports. So Jake asked me to be involved with him. So I've really enjoyed doing that. And that's not something that if you'd have asked me 12 months ago, it wasn't uh, on in my plans to record anything like this. So um, I don't know is the answer, but I'm enjoying not knowing at this moment in time. Yeah, no, perfect, perfect. No, it's, it is a, an amazing podcast as well, high performance podcast. Um, so it's uh, it's I get notifications every time a new one comes because I, I really like the people that you're talking to and I really like the questions that you're asking because the different questions they get you're asking it from a different perspective and you're trying to understand the stuff that we're talking about today, like the the mindset and what's driven it. What's that, what is that that moment that is that has triggered um, the success and stuff. So no, I think there's a, a lot of value from from that podcast. So. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I think that, I was going to say, I think that's been a big driver for us, that I think I think the idea of getting some of these people that we've described and actually asking them to, to humanise their story rather than be blinded by the gold medals or the wealth or the fame that comes with it, getting them to humanise their success and explain it. So there's a really nice one that's coming out in a few weeks where we interviewed Robin Van Persie, the, uh, the Dutch footballer, and he did a bit where he, he asked, he said, can I tell you this? And he told us about um, a conversation he had with his 14-year-old son. And, you know, you asked me about how you do this with the kids. He basically gave us, um, he gave his son a lesson on high performance at 14, and he was good enough to share it on the podcast where, he, you know, it was very human. And I, really, I said to him afterwards, I said, I really admire the fact that you shared that because that made you, very human and it was very relatable to a lot of parents that are probably facing a similar situation where yeah. I won't spoil it if anyone listens to it but the idea was it spoke about his 14 year old son was playing for a football team and he came off and he was moaning about the coaches and his teammates and the opposition and Van Persie said hey, we were driving home and he just stopped the car and said we need to have a chat son and he went I still love you I will always love you and your dad I think you're amazing he said, but you sound like a loser. And he said, let wow. me just list the amount of people you've just blamed. And he said, and there's one missing from the list, you. There's no self-reflection. There's no self-awareness. There's no um, any kind of navel-gazing that's happening. And he said, and if you want to carry on down that route, you keep doing it and be you're guaranteed that I'll always love you. But you start, you're going to have to adjust your expectations in life because you're acting like a loser and you'll get the results of a loser. And he said, well, let me wow. tell you the opposite way. And then he goes in and talks about that. And I was just sat there thinking, this is a real privilege to get to hear yeah. a guy that's had his success in his chosen domain sharing how he speaks to his 14-year-old son. And I was thinking, how can you not learn from this? So hopefully people sort of um, like the human elements of the stories. So there's a lot of sports people in it. There's a few business people that we've interviewed, but it's not about sport or business. It's just about people. Yeah. Yeah, no, love it, love it. No, it's really good, really good. No, thank you for thank that. You. And I just want to say thank you very much again for your time, time today, uh, and uh, and earning your second cap on on the podcast. It's no, I feel honoured. Yeah, no, 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 not as much as I do. <laughs> honestly, it's an absolute pleasure and an absolute privilege to uh, to take up some of your time again. So, uh, thank you very much, Damien. And, no, no, uh, thank you, Lee. And th thanks for sharing that story about your mate as well. I'm really moved about that. That's really powerful, and I, I love hearing about your golden seed moment for for setting up your business because I know the difference that you make to to any organisation that you join so 
thank you for sharing that and thanks for asking us to come on no perfect thanks very much Damien you have an amazing day and and you, you stay safe with the family cheers you too mate thanks for listening to Business Problems Solved you can contact Lee on LinkedIn Facebook Instagram or Twitter by searching for Lee Horton The Business Problem Solver or via visiting www.leehorton.com for more content and to solve your business problems and remember Saying you know how to do it is not doing it.